In healthcare, there are many transformative leaders. The most remarkable leaders don't just dare greatly to drive improvements, they also care greatly. They bring compassion and humanity to the work of leading transformation. This is their podcast. In today's episode, I talk with Bob Henkel, former president and CEO of Ascension Healthcare and current president of Healthcare Transformation at the Theo Executive Group. As the leader of the largest faith-based health system in the U.S., Mr. Henkel focused on building a community based on values that supersede any individual leader. As the head of the system, he walked the walk of creating caring connections and serving the underserved. Now, he is helping to spread his leadership wisdom through trainings, mentorship, and board engagement. Mr. Henkel is a leader who cares greatly. So welcome, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Caring Greatly podcast. Great, Liz. Happy to do it. So you were a leader at Ascension Health from its founding in 1998 and eventually rising to CEO of the system from which position you retired in 2017. What were your goals as a leader during your time at Ascension? As a leader, I always thought of my goals in in two ways. I had personal goals in that leadership uh, position and public goals. So let me just talk about both of those. So first personal goal that I, that I had throughout my career was to continuously improve my ability to listen. And I know that is a common trait and something that people talk about all the time. But as I thought about listening, it wasn't just about hearing the words, but thinking about as a leader, how do I listen more effectively? I think most of us as as leaders, our initial reaction when we're listening to somebody that we're speaking with, they come to you with an issue or with a problem or with a concern, we we often hear what they're talking about and then we start by asking questions. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this or have you thought about it this way? I learned that that wasn't such an effective listening technique because what happens when you ask a question you begin to lead people down a path, mm. sometimes whether they want to go there or not. And so I, I, I came up with a relatively simple way to be more effective. And instead of asking a question, after the person stopped talking, I would sit back for a second and then I would say three words, tell me more. Interesting. And wait for them to speak again. Because by doing that, you really free the person up to go where they really want to go. So you're not guiding them any longer. They're guiding themselves. And I thought I learned more from from doing that than by asking specific questions. Second personal goal that I always had was to stay grounded. What I mean is to control my ego. Every leader has an ego, but the ego can't become more important than the organization you're leading. And and I think that's something that we all at times have to remind ourselves of. And I thought that was a very important one. Publicly, first and foremost, and I would say this all the time, that as a leader, a role and my role in particular was to assure the future of the mission of the organization. Very simple, but not so easy to do all the time. And and that had to be kind of the the foremost uh, position of my goals. 
Secondly, and when I stepped in, particularly when I stepped into the leadership of Ascension as president and CEO of Ascension Health, my intention was to create an organizational culture of community. And I said that the very first day that I took that position. And in Ascension, we had a ritual, regardless of what part of the organization you were become, becoming the CEO of, we had what we called a commissioning ritual. And that was to signify that leadership in healthcare and in Catholic healthcare in particular was more than just running a business, but it was really leading a ministry with a mission. And, and I said on that day to several hundred folks in St. Louis that we were going to embark on the culture of community. And that was the beginning of that discussion. That's so th very cool. I want to focus in on this idea of a culture of community. When you say you, you had a goal of creating a culture of community, what does that mean? When I think of creating organizational cultures, I think of it on a continuum. On one end of the continuum is what I will call an individualistic or an individual culture. And at the other end of that spectrum is a culture that could be more considered a cult. Both of those you know, extremes, I believe, are not good for any organization. But in between, there are a lot of opportunities. And, and as I kind of laid it out on my own spectrum, so you had individual, you had a group culture, you had a team culture, and then you have a community culture that, that moving along that spectrum. So within a group, it's, it's relatively easy entry and exit of individuals into the organization. And within group cultures, typically task is king, and it's a skills-based focus for individuals. Um, depending upon the type of organization that can work very well, I don't think it's very functional in the, in the healthcare space. You can move along the spectrum to team-based organizations, and you see many examples of, of organizational teams and, and, and organizations that are very effective and, and very successful that are organized that way. And in a team, trust is earned by individuals. Entry and exit of individuals into and out of the organization is a little bit more complex than, than the group. The organization begins to be what I call weight-bearing. Teams have the ability to deal with challenges, can be effective in, in dealing with issues, um, can take on, can take on the, the objectives and goals of the organization. But the one characteristic, and this is where I'll get into a differentiation of community, within a team-based culture, the leader or the CEO is at the center. When you go and start to become more of a community-based organization, you begin to differentiate on a couple of areas. Now trust is assumed. So when people come in to an organization, they don't have to, they don't have to earn the trust of their colleagues. You're assuming that, that they are there and committed for the same purposes that everybody else is. The differentiation from a team to a community is that at the, at the team, remember I said the leader or CEO is at the center. Mm -hmm. In a community-based culture, the mission, vision, and values of the organization 
are at the center. And that is a significant differentiation. Within that, I, I, within a community, the concept of citizenship becomes very important, i.e. the individuals and leadership in a community have rights, but they also have responsibilities. There's a mutual accountability that is critically important and relationships are essential. And for all of those reasons, community cultures are expensive in organizations. And by that, I mean, it takes both time to continue to build those kinds of relationships. It takes continuous reinforcement of this cultural concept of community. So I think what you're, you're saying makes a lot of sense, but it still feels somewhat abstract. And I'd love if you could give a, a specific example that illustrates what you're talking about, about this idea of citizenship, rights and responsibilities, relationships, um, uh, and the idea of being weight-bearing across the organization. Can you delve into it a little bit more, maybe with a specific example from your experience? When we began to be faced with a number of issues as a as an health as a complex healthcare business. We had um, the changes that were going on in the industry as a whole, i.e., inpatient hospitalizations were decreasing. The the discharges per one thousand of population virtually across the country were going down because technology was changing. Regulatory advances were, were changing, medical care was changing, um, and that was a substantive part of an acute care-based organization like ours in, in terms of revenue. At the same time, dissension grew through mergers of Catholic healthcare systems across the country, some acquisitions. So we had organizations that that had different IT platforms and had different benefit structures that 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 had many many differences and we needed to create an effective integrated efficient organization for the future so we have we now have a, a set of issues coming up that require reducing expenses yet if we're going to create that true organization integrated organization we need to make significant investments of infrastructure and and so as we as we thought about it as an organization and across our leadership team we made a decision to invest over a billion dollars in an erp and enter, enterprise resource planning uh, infrastructure that's common human resource structure common it platforms um, common benefits um, common financial in terms of uh, accounts payable, accounts receivable, very concrete things that were being done. In some places we were running, we were running over 125 different payrolls across Ascension every other week. We needed to be down to one for 150,000 employees. We were doing accounts payable and receivable at, at several hundred locations across the country. We needed to be able to do that at one location. We had so many different IT systems. We needed to have one IT platform. Those are substantive changes for people. It meant people were going to lose their jobs. It meant jobs were going to change. It meant locations of jobs were going to change. And I think the 
the, the value of the community that came into play there in a very concrete way was that it was how we went through that process, both making that decision for the long term, but then how do you how do you work through those issues that are that affect real human beings? Thousands of our employees, I think there were probably over five thousand jobs that were impacted. Mm. We went through and people did this, I believe, because of that culture of community, identified every single position, the name of the person, everybody knew two, two and a half years before their positions were changed or eliminated, what was going to be happening. And they had time to either look at other opportunities, get education for other roles in the organization, potentially move if they chose to, or transition out of the organization if that was the best thing. So it was very, very hard and tough decisions that every organization faces. But having that culture of oneness allowed us to make a tough decision that I can tell you as we were going through it, not knowing what the outcome was going to be, um, wasn't an easy one to make, but it was one that people could understand in the context of that community culture. That makes a lot of sense. And it also seems like transparency is an absolute critical component of it because not every organization in that situation would be clear about those impacts that far in advance. Right. Trust and transparency. And that's that trust is assumed. I remember I said that at the very mm -hmm. beginning. If we had not done that, if we had not gone through that and been transparent, how do you manage to continue that culture of assumed trust? Right. You would, right. You would be inconsistent with the culture. And so it does require effort. It does require you to think through the kinds of issues. But, but that's, a, that's a very concrete example and hopefully helpful. Definitely. Um, when we've talked in the past, you've made a distinction between a commitment to mission and values and creating a community based on those values. And I think that's important because I think most organizations see themselves as committed to or at least speak to the importance of their values. Can you describe that difference between that commitment uh, to mission and values versus creating a community based on those? Sure. And, and you know, again, I think you said it. The I've, I've never... Um, experienced really any organization that I've either worked in or been associated with where, you know, the leaders don't have a, they, they have a commitment to the values. They speak to them all the time. The difference between that commitment of speaking to things and believing in it and, and the culture of community is even illustrated in what I had just talked about. When, when, it, when you have some major challenges, are you keeping that mission at the center of your organization and looking at that in the long term? Or is that commitment in words, but then you, you decide, well, we're not going to talk to people about the fact that jobs are going to be lost here, mm -hmm. um, even though you know, everyone will, will know that. So I think that, that's the difference. Do you have any thoughts on on what happens when that desire to lead in a community based on value bumps up against some of the day-to-day -day challenges, particularly where there aren't enough resources, those challenges of leading a business? Yes, and, and maybe this is a personal philosophy. I never believed the way to look at, at those issues were, um, you know, 
the the lack of resources versus uh, the mission or requirements of the organization. We can't do this because we don't have that. If that's the starting point, I think it's a it, it's it really diminishes the concept of creativity mm-hmm. because now you're focusing on the negative. We don't have this, so maybe we can't do this anymore. We we have to we have but instead of thinking about it like that, we don't have this. How do we accomplish the other? When we were creating our integrated delivery system at Ascension, we were looking at all of our businesses and our senior services were wrapped up in all of our acute care organizations in the local communities that we we served. And we decided as as senior care was continuing to grow, it, it really was a very different business and needed different leadership. And so we we created a national senior care program and moved all of those assets into a a new company. When we did that, it was an interesting because we brought in new leadership who with experience in this particular area and and they were looking at the business and said, well, wait a minute, here's Ascension, here are your common benefits and comp structures. They don't really work in senior care. We've got to bring those down because we otherwise we won't be able to meet the the kinds of margins that are required in in senior care. We won't be able to contribute to, to the organization. We ultimately came to the conclusion that we, if someone was working with an Ascension, whether it was senior care or someplace else, we were not going to provide a different benefit structure just because that's the way it was done in the senior care business across the country. And because of that, we said, okay, we'll take, we may not be able to do as well, or maybe maybe we'll even take a loss on the senior business. But because of that mutual accountability across this community culture, our leaders said, that makes sense. We will do that to create the care that's needed in our communities uh, and we'll make it up through through creativity, through the other businesses that were that were put together. That was an, that was something that we had a, as a capability because of the size of our organization. But we could have very easily said, uh, we're gonna make this senior service competitive just like everybody else mm-hmm. and we're going to take it off the backs of our employees that would have that would have dealt a blow to this culture of community it's sort of the opposite of no margin no mission it's we have a mission um, we will get creative to find the margin that lets us achieve that that's it, that's it. And, and i you know again that, that was one of the, the the no margin no mission you know was it was a was assigned to the to the daughters of charity many many years ago, and and I think it was misinterpreted, um, because it it really it it really is you you have to find the margin to do the mission, and if you if you think about it, it's been done for hundreds of years. It, it can continue to be done even in the face of the most difficult challenges. Right, but I think often it's as you said, it gets misused in a way that says we have to have our commitment to finances above above all and we'll do the best for the mission secondary to that as opposed to what you're describing which is a case where the mission is absolutely central and the purpose of the margin and the creativity in finding it and creating it is in service of that mission that's exactly right again it goes back to at the center of the culture of community is the mission 
So you've described um, some of the attributes there that leaders that are creating a community need to have. They're assuming trust, there's transparency, they're able to unleash creativity to solve mission-focused challenges, uh, but putting yourself in the shoes of a leader who is trying to create uh, community, what are some of the other key um, traits, behaviors, attributes that you need to bring to the table in order to, to bring this forward? Courage is, is a critical attribute. And, and the reason I went to that immediately is that it's not necessarily, it's not a short-term creation of that culture. It, it takes continuous nurturing and it's constant focus on the long-term, not the short-term. And so much of what we do um, we we push for those, we focus on those short-term results. We sometimes create rewards on short-term results. We we move people in, in that direction. We measure so many things on short-term results. You don't create culture in the short-term. Um, and you, so that, so the courage to stay the course in the, and, and to overcome and help people who maybe don't see it as beneficial right away um, is an important attribute. From a leadership standpoint, this, and none of these are in kind of order of priority, but the, the ability to, to continue to demonstrate through your own actions as a leader the attributes of that culture that I've, that I've spoken about. You know, we went back, we talked about the transparency. Um, you have to be, you have to be very transparent and, and, and sometimes brutally honest um, in, in an organization. And, and then you have to believe and be comfortable that as you talk about issues and, and very sometimes difficult ones, across the organization that people in the organization can handle that information. Um, and that, that takes both courage and, and transparency um, and integrity. I mean, you just, you just can't deviate. Everybody watches, um, is, is the leader or are the leaders across the organization truly making decisions based on the mission and vision of the organization and the values, um, and and do they talk about it? Do they give examples of how that connects when talking about a decision or a change process that's in place, or maybe a, a hard thing that needs to be done um, in in terms of elimination of positions, etc. Or perhaps we even have to close an acute care hospital in a community. Talk to the community about that. And, and how do we then serve that community in a different way? Uh, very difficult challenges, but can be done if you're consistent within, within that culture. Yeah, so communication absolutely is, is key. Again, I've seen organizations that are making value-based decisions and then fail to communicate that, and, and people end up telling all kinds of stories um, 
sometimes be, because of the fear or the uncertainty that's created by the decision. So that communication matters a lot. So you've described some of the benefits of leading in a community, having that mission focus, having that trust and the creativity. Overall, if you were to encapsulate the benefit of, of leading in a community way as opposed to a team way or a group way, um, what are the benefits? How do you see as a leader that you're succeeding and, and what kinds of outcomes are you achieving? Well, my, what I believed was we, we were able to accelerate the achievement of our outcomes because of, of the fact that we had created that culture. It takes, as that culture really becomes um, part of the organization, it takes less time to make changes. It takes less time to, to even gain the understanding of why something is, is being done. Um, and we measured those kinds of changes, whether it came, uh, whether it came to improved experience of those that we were serving, and that was a constant measure of ours. Or as we we began to focus on some of the social determinants of health and what we were doing in the communities, uh, were we able to to begin to affect those changes and see some kind of real outcome data. Um, even even our clinical quality um, performance and how quickly our clinical leaders and, and clinical providers uh, across the system continue to learn from each other, those relationships um, were so important. And even across distances, as people come, became known to each other, um, again, assumed that trust. So when someone, a clinic, one, one orthopedic surgeon's talking to another orthopedic surgeon uh, about why they use certain devices or, or the processes of care that they were using. All of a sudden, it didn't become somebody telling me what I had to do differently, but they were talking about the clinical value-based outcome that was there. And I thought about it. It wasn't something that, that was going to be beneficial to them, but it was going to be beneficial to those that we serve. I'm absolutely convinced that our ability to even implement the enterprise resource planning program, which is extremely difficult change across a, a system. People were doing things for 30, 40 years a certain way, had to all of a sudden change, could not have occurred in the time frame that we did it had it not been for that culture. So I know you retired from, uh, from Ascension a few years ago, but you're still very actively involved in advising and, of course, connected to uh, leaders across the industry. So as you look ahead to how healthcare will continue to transform over the next three to five years, what's your vision for what it's going to look like or feel like? I'm, I'm, I, will, I will answer that question, but then I'm going to come back to the question and suggest the question should be asked a little bit different. <laughs> okay. You're the second okay. person to do that. I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, I, I, we're going to continue to see critical, I mean, quick advances in the treatment of disease, uh, the diagnosis capabilities. I mean, artificial intelligence, even just today, I believe in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article uh, about artificial intelligence and the interpretation of, of mammograms and the effectiveness of, of AI in, in terms of diagnosing cancers that were being missed um, by 
you know, very experienced and well-respected radiologists diagnosing them earlier, maybe some of the more complex cancers. The, the fact that the human genome is there, individualized treatment is, is going to be happening. I mean, there's, there's work right now that has the potential to eliminate um, sickle cell disease, a very painful disease, but, but they've found because of the human genome, there's just, there's just two letters that are reversed for people who have sickle cell, mm-hmm. and now they're finding the science is enabling that to be, to be changed. There's going to be regulatory reform Healthcare, the cost of what we're doing today can't continue. We all know that from an economic standpoint, uh, it's not sustainable. And that's why I think the question should be different. The question shouldn't be really, what's the vision for healthcare? The question should be, what's our vision for health mm-hmm. in the future? Because if we don't start talking about health instead of healthcare, I think we are in for continuously difficult both economic and economic challenges. In this country today, the most statistically significant predictor of one's uh, health status as an adult is the zip code you're born in. That's a sad statement for this country. Yet, we, we spend more than any other nation on earth for health care, but we allow the zip code to be the primary determinant of your health status as an adult. Mm-hmm. That speaks to the issues of obviously, you know, education, safe housing, nutrition, access to care, places where investment is required and it is not going to be solved in the short term. It's a really generational issue. And that's why I talked about courage earlier, because it's going to take a lot of leadership courage, whether it be on the policy side, whether it be on the industry side, uh, to, to really make the changes that are necessary to have a true impact on health in this country. But if we impact health, we're going to impact the productivity of our society. We're going to impact the, the, the cost in terms of being able to decrease those, those costs because the, the care and, and all of these changes that we're seeing are going to be expensive and continue to have investment, and that's great, but that's reduced the number of people who actually develop those, those diseases to begin with. The environment is, is very important. So if we're really going to truly make the country great, I believe we have to focus on health more than we're focusing on healthcare. Well, hopefully we will have the courageous leaders uh, across all generations and, and socioeconomic classes who can help to make that happen because uh, it's going to take a, a multi-industry, multi-constituent kind of effort to make that take place. But I think that's a wonderful reminder. Um, I, th- I see a lot of social determinants work in healthcare and I think it's great that this industry is taking it on, but we can't do it all by ourselves when we're talking about living wages and fair housing and access to food and uh, all of those things that will make that health environment. So I like the idea of, of tasking all leaders across all industries uh, with working towards that shared vision of health. Are you optimistic we can get there? Depends upon the day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I go back to this, the, the culture of community 
I, I assume people, everyone has good intentions. And I think that, so I, so I, I, that makes me feel optimistic that it can be done. There's a lot of money being poured in from Gates Foundation, from Robert Wood Johnson, into community-based organizations who are focused on these social determinants. But many of them are inexperienced in how they work together to create the outcomes that that money is designed to do. And so that's been one of my focus areas over the past year is to say, how do we, is there a way to assist all of this good work that's being done to be much more effective and accelerate the outcome capabilities there? And I don't know whether that's possible or not. I think it should be. And I think there needs to be more work provided and more effort to, to give the resources that are necessary to actually um, utilize those dollars in appropriate ways in the communities. Well, I'm glad that there's someone like you looking at ways to connect those dots and, and make that more effective because I think each of those, each of those individual leaders, based on what you've described, will work, work far more effectively in a community and with a commi commitment to community outcomes. So thank you for sharing these insights and for uh, continuing to shape uh, a healthier community. Well, it's a passion of mine and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today and to hopefully provide some, some ideas that others can take to the next place. Without a doubt. Thank you so much, Bob. Take care, Liz. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Caring Greatly podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. For links to resources related to Mr. Henkel's work, visit vocera.com slash podcast and click on his episode. This is Liz Bohm, Executive Strategist for Human-Centered Research at the Experience Innovation Network, part of Vocera. Thank you for caring greatly.